If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one the World According to Zig podcast for this December 15, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. And uh, we have a fantastic podcast for you today in our number two, Michael Isakoff, Yahoo investigative reporter and the author of the book Russian Roulette, The Inside Story of Putin's War in America and the Election of Donald Trump, joins us for a fascinating full-hour interview that um, will pretty much give you almost everything you want, no matter what your your uh, preferred narrative is, because Michael has some fascinating things to say that I found quite kind of surprising and definitely not in the realm of a Trump hater with regard to the Russia story, although there's obviously some incredibly damaging information there. Um, maybe it's about our expectations. <laughs> so basically, I don't think Michael believes that the evidence indicates that Trump was a Russian spy, <laughs> which tells you a lot about where we are in today's day and age. You know, one of the greatest things that you can have in life is low expectations. And Donald Trump certainly benefits from that more than anybody else I can possibly think of because, yeah, we're not going to be able to prove that he was a Russian spy. Woohoo! <laughs> wow! Awesome! Uh, that That's that's really where we are. But uh, make sure you listen to hour number two and Michael Ishikov. And we have a special hour number three for the fourth consecutive year in a, around Christmas time. We're speaking with my daughter, Grace Ziegler. She's now six years old, probably most well-known for her comments that led off the last edition of the Sunday night uh, syndicated radio show back uh, when we did a uh, nationally syndicated terrestrial radio show. It's costing money! That was her explanation for why we ended that, although that had much more to do with Donald Trump, although it was definitely costing money. Uh, She was right about that, and you're going to want to check out hour number three because she really is pretty hilarious and cute as heck and hopefully some life lessons are are learned in hour number three with my daughter grace as for hour number one there is so much to get to by the way apologies for the fact that we've not done a podcast for a little over a month uh there were a lot of reasons for that part of it had to do with uh well we had the wildfires which thankfully we we survived here in southern california my wife has been undergoing some very serious health issues which we hope and believe are under control uh, Santa Claus came to town. Uh, my father came to town. Uh, you know, there's, I played in a golf tournament one weekend. Uh, so there's been a lot of different things that have been going on. So uh, this is likely the last episode of 2018. I thought for a while it might be the last episode we ever do, but there's been at least a modicum of good news for the podcast. There was a bank error. <laughs> It's been corrected, which which might get us through most of 2019, depending on, on how often we do the podcast. Uh, we're probably going to be shooting, depending on, again, the breaks, uh, more on along the lines of a once a month rather than once a week. But uh, we're trying to, to um, make sure this goes on as long as possible, especially with the news as hot and heavy as it has been. Uh, there's also the, the outside chance we may expand the podcast in some ways. I had conversations regarding that. 
for potential 2019 expansion, but that's very much in the preliminary stages and, and may or may not happen. Uh, but obviously, a ton of stuff has happened since the last time we spoke a little over a month ago. I want to start with the death of George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president. And, uh, you know, this has been a year of death uh, for conservatives. I mean, you could make an argument that metaphorically this was the year conservatism died, uh, along with many of our leading figures, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, his wife Barbara, Charles Krauthammer, John McCain. Uh, you could argue that yesterday the, the uh, Weekly Standard magazine died. Uh, we're also losing the voices of Jeff Flake and Bob Corker in the Senate as they retire. You could even argue we're kind of losing. We've already lost the voices of Glenn Beck and Ben Shapiro, who this year decided to jump on the uh, the Trump train far more than they had been uh, previously. So this has not been a good year uh, from that perspective uh, with regard to di- dissenting voices uh, within what's left of conservatism. But uh, if you take uh, the, the death of George Herbert Walker Bush in isolation, wow, uh, unless we're being lied to, it sounds like it was as perfect as it could possibly have been. Uh, he was able to somehow outlive his wife, which I'm sure was very important to him, uh, had enough time to to clearly uh, put everything into order and go as peacefully as possible without it uh, you know, going beyond the point where you know, he didn't have any idea what was going on or was a huge burden or what have you. And then, of course, the, the, the ceremonies, the funerals, uh, the services were all tremendous. I mean, just amazing in every possible way. Uh, George W. Bush's uh, eulogy to his dad was fantastic. Uh, probably the best speech I've ever seen him give. And maybe the best eulogy I've ever seen anybody give. Uh, I mean, there's a guy who really, really loved his dad. And, um, and you know, these, these things from a logistical standpoint are always amazing to me. I, I, I mean, I realize there's planning, but there's no way to rehearse this kind of thing. We've only, in the modern era, we've only buried a former president a couple of times. And and yet these things happen like clockwork. I mean, there's almost no snafus, no delays, and it's all just so incredibly well done. And and, and George George Herbert Walker Bush's uh, case, incredibly well deserved. And so I was happy about that. Uh, that, that he certainly got the send-off he deserved. Yes, Donald Trump was there, uh, which, of course, caused tension. I, I sent out a tweet uh, towards the end of the funeral noting that it was awfully odd that Donald Trump, did, and nor did uh, Melania, his wife, even attempt to recite the Apostles' Creed, while right next to them, Barack Obama, you know, the guy who we were told was a Muslim by, among others, Donald Trump, effectively, uh, he was saying the Apostles' Creed as if he had done it many, many times before. You see, I mean, he was looking at, down on the paper, but uh, it was obvious this was not the first time he had recited the Apostles' Creed, and yet Trump made no effort. Now, my first response to that, I mean, my first instinct with Trump is always that he's just a a, a doofus uh, and a buffoon and 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 he doesn't care about uh, how things look and he's not respectful that this was probably just him not caring that's what my first uh, inclination was and i repeat I, I i tweeted this out and it, i haven't done the math on it but i think it was the second most popular tweet i've ever sent in my life uh, it was seen by almost two million people at least two million impressions and uh you know liked like sixty thousand times uh, and was published, I mean, in numerous news articles uh, throughout the world. I, I was even being used as proof of the media negative reaction to Trump at the funeral. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm the media? I, I'm the media now. It's just flat out ridiculous. Yeah, that's absurd. Uh, but, um, but the point here is, I, 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 it was interesting to me seeing the reaction to, to that tweet because, of course, the Trump fans, the Colt 45, they came up with all sorts of hilarious 
rationalizations for what he was doing. When, of course, if it had been reversed and Obama had sat there with his hands at his side, silent during the Apostles' Creed, all hell would have broken loose, especially if Obama was still president of the United States. But that's the, that's the nature of the hypocritical uh, realm in which we, we currently live, especially when it comes to cult 45. But uh, a lot of cult 45ers told me, no, 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 this was done on purpose by Trump. Because he doesn't believe in creeds. And I'm like, okay, well, wait a minute. Hold on. Uh, the, <laughs> he doesn't, first of all, he's, he's done oaths before. Um, and, and he's the evangelical Christian hero. So what do you, so, so let's just do, I know that logic is dangerous in this day and age, but so if he doesn't believe in the Apostles' Creed, okay, I'm all for that. That's fine. But then you can't claim he's a Christian. And then, of course, a lot of people said, no, 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 this is a Catholic prayer. No, moron. No, no, no. It says Catholic in the prayer, but that's Catholic with a small C, not a big C. That has nothing to do with the quote-unquote Catholic Church. So, like everything with Trump, and the reason why this is interesting is because the the ability to rationalize is uh, Herculean. Uh, on the part of the the cult 45 group and of course logic means nothing to them you can't have it both ways either he was incredibly disrespectful or he's not really a christian so which is it by the way it could have been both it could have been it could have been both <laughs> but but you got to pick, pick at least one but more importantly i was i was happy that uh, other than having Trump around, that George Herbert Walker Bush got the send-off that he deserved. I, I referenced the death of the Weekly Standard, which happened yesterday. And, and Trump, being the jackass that he is, couldn't just let this go. So he tweeted this morning uh, uh, in, in a in completely jackassery fashion, uh, stomping on the grave, almost literally, of the Weekly Standard. Now, let's be clear about this. First of all, it's classless. When you want to talk about class, the Bushes are class, right? You may not may disagree with them for good reason about a lot of things, but they're they're a classy family. Donald Trump, not classy. And so forget about the fact that this was an incredibly not classy move to tweet this as these people, conservatives, by the way, have all lost their jobs and maybe their careers just before Christmas. So if you had a shred of human decency, you wouldn't do that, especially as president of the United States, right? This is not a, this is not a commentator. He's the president of the United States. I realize he, he seems to think of himself as a shock jock now that we have to pay attention to. But he's the president of the United States, and he makes effectively an official declaration publicly to millions and millions of people uh, stomping on the grave of the Weekly Standard a conservative magazine. Conservative. So it's not just inhumane and, 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 a, and, the, and, a, and the act of a jackass. It's also the act of a guy who's not a conservative. And I've been saying this from day one. He doesn't give a rat's ass about conservatism. Yeah, all he cares about is the Weekly Standard didn't support him. And in his mind, that's the reason why they died. And I'm sure that was part of it, although the people close to this are saying it was more complex than that. But in Trump's mind, you know, Cro-Magnum Trump, they thought Trump bad, they die, that's why they die, that good. That's, that's the way Trump's mind works on this. It's no more complex than that, and it's disgraceful, especially coming from a president of the United States. Now, uh, obviously there's been a ton of Trump news and I really urge you to, because uh, most of it has been at least somewhat related to the Russian investigation, I urge you to listen to hour number two in our interview with Michael Isikoff, as I've already promoted. But uh, because he, he knows the story about as well as anybody, wrote a book about it, and he's starting to uh, believe that the collusion uh, conclusion is not going to bear out, that that what we're seeing here and these tea leaves that are being presented by Mueller is a situation where the, uh, the, the evidence is just not going to be there. Or maybe even the allegation is not going to be there. That There's a lot of very, very, very bad stuff, and we're learning more about this bad stuff on an almost a daily basis, but that quote-unquote conspiracy to collude to win the election with Russia 
may not be part of that equation. Now, the one question I did not get a chance to ask Michael about, which I'm kicking myself for, but he, we ran out of time, and I wrote a column about this, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. One thing that I keep, and I'm not rooting, I'm not rooting for collusion, and I'm not convinced of collusion. I've been trying to be that very clear about those two things throughout all of this. Uh, in fact, I have written numerous columns saying, hey, wait a minute, uh, this doesn't make sense based upon the, the, conclu- the, uh, the collusion narrative, including one I wrote about Michael Flynn recently, which you can also find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. But the one thing that, that makes me think, well, wait a minute, there's got to be something way more than what we currently know that directly ties to Trump that's very serious. And that's because of the lack, the lack of a leak by Mueller's team exonerating Trump. And I wrote a very extensive column about this. I think this is an important point that often gets lost. People always think about, okay, what is it that we've been told? Sometimes what you haven't been told, sometimes the things that haven't happened are the most damaging or the most important. Because let's think about this logically. With all of this negative Trump speculation, endless speculation in the, every single element of the news media, we've reached the point where the, the trust that at least 50% of the American people have in the institution of the, of the presidency has been greatly diminished, if not destroyed, because people are coming to the conclusion that Trump is in the pocket of Vladimir Putin and Russia and that there may have been a conspiracy on the part of the Trump campaign and Russia to defeat Hillary Clinton. Now, if that's if Mueller knows that's not true, which he would at this point, then how has he not been giving any of these major media uh, personalities or these outlets at least a heads up, even a wink, wink, nod, nod, like a, hey, don't get ahead of your skis on this. We're not there. It would be unconscionable, both from a moral standpoint as well as a practical one, for Mueller's team not to do that. One, because they're going to make themselves look like complete idiots if at the end of this, there's nothing, they don't really lay lay a glove on Donald Trump personally. That's number one. Number two, they're doing a disservice to the country. Because if they know Trump is quote-unquote exonerated, at least with regard to the the biggest allegations here, and and, and there's a part of me that thinks Trump is not a complete idiot. I mean, I I, I view him as an idiot savant. There, there might be a very good reason why he's putting collusion as the goalposts. He's constantly saying, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion. Although they've shifted a little bit to, you know, collusion is not really a crime anyway if it had happened, which makes me go, hmm. But, okay, let's just give Trump the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's smart enough to set that up as the goalpost because he knows there wasn't collusion. And that anything short of that, like, for instance... Oh, by the way, I was still trying to do a Trump Tower Moscow deal in June of 2016 as I was taking the Republican presidential nomination that that somehow is no big deal, which should be a huge fucking deal. I mean, that is that should be humongous. Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio and John Kasich should have held a joint press conference saying, what the living hell? If this had been known... At that time, along with a bunch of other things we've now learned, and I wrote a column about this as well for Mediaite, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, there's a very good argument to be made. Trump does not win the Republican nomination. Obviously, the timing would be key, but you got to remember, this is a guy who it was 2,000 votes away from finishing third in Iowa. It's not like he came out of the gates as Superman. He was Clark Kent injected with $2 billion worth of free media steroids. That's what Trump was at the beginning of that whole process. And so if we had known all these things, the the Trump-Moscow situation being a huge part of it, then I I really do believe the history would be different. But Cruz and, and Rubio are so wussified and so afraid of the Trump cult that they can't even bring it up. 
But anyway, the, the, the point of all this is that if Mueller knew that this isn't going to work out, this, that, that we don't have it, we don't have a smoking gun, that we're not going to be able to get there, it would be irresponsible. Now, I know a lot of people think, well, Mueller's a bad guy. I don't know what the evidence is that Mueller's a bad guy. I mean, conservatives should love Robert Mueller. Lifelong Republican, war hero, long storied history of government service. He's only a bad guy now because you want him to be a bad guy because you want Trump to be innocent. And because Trump's been telling his cult that Mueller's a bad guy and his, you know, 43 angry Democrats working with him, which is all bullshit. So... I, I don't buy that premise. I, I think Mueller's uh, a by-the-book prosecutor. Well, a by-the-book prosecutor would be obligated to at least, at least underground. This would be incredibly easy to do. You have an underling say, hey, look, this is off the record, but hold your horses on this. Slow down. Calm down. And there's no evidence that has happened. And the silence there is deafening. And I wish I would have had a chance to ask Michael about that. Maybe I'll do that off the air and and get back to you in the next podcast because that, to me, is an important point here. The the two things I keep holding my hat on that there's got to be more here is Trump's acting guiltier than O.J. did when he got in the white Ford Bronco and heading to Mexico. And there's been no exonerating leak by the Mueller team. Those two things are devastating. But I agree that Michael Isikoff makes some really strong points. Now, let's go through specifically some of the most recent revelations. The one I'm going to mention first is maybe the most bizarre. And I'm going to mention it first, one, because we've never talked about it before on the podcast, and two, because there's a John Ziegler connection. (laughs) There's always a John Ziegler connection, folks, to any story, and we have finally found it. Well, actually... There's several John Ziegler connections when it comes to this particular element of the story. But let me just tell you about Maria Butina and Paul Erickson. Paul Erickson is the boyfriend who apparently was her co-conspirator as a Russian spy, which she pled guilty to uh, this week. And uh, her job was to infiltrate the NRA. And maybe the most bizarre piece of tape. I mean, there's, there's a couple pieces of tape in this whole situation that are amazing and have not gotten nearly enough play. The first one, which we keep playing, and other people are starting to play it now, uh, and, and better late than never, is Nora O'Donnell talking to Paul Manafort back when he was the campaign chairman for the Trump campaign just before the Republican convention, and she asked him this. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. <laughs> cannot get through that without laughing it's so amazing and yet very few people even know about it well in that category is another piece of tape and this is just mind-blowing most americans don't know this so donald trump becomes a candidate in the summer of 2015 the first time he is ever publicly asked about russia vladimir putin and russian sanctions imposed by the Obama administration, is by none other than Maria Butina. Now, that alone, can you imagine, given the conspiracies about the Clintons, can you imagine if the first time Hillary ever talked about this was by a, a Russian spy, an, an admitted Russian spy infiltrating a liberal political organization? In this case, a conservative one, the NRA. I want you to listen. We're going to play the first almost two minutes of Trump uh, picking her out of the crowd. Now, granted, it appears as if she was at the front of a line. This is, this is the way these things normally work. You know, there's a line to ask questions of the speaker. So Trump finishes his speech, and it's time to start uh, answering questions. And Maria Butina, I, you know, I think it's, I'm very open to the idea that she's there to make sure she gets a question for Trump because she wants to show her bosses back home what a great job that she's doing infiltrating the American political system, that here she is getting Donald Trump on the record about 
Putin and sanctions in a very, very, very positive way towards towards uh, Putin. Now, I want you to listen to a couple things that are key. Listen to how he introduces her, what he says right off the bat when you, when we start the clip. Uh, listen to her question. Listen. He then goes off on a tangent, but then he comes back and he says he knows Putin and he's against the sanctions. So here was this back in 2015. Okay, let's go. Sorry. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I'm visiting from Russia. So ah, my question. Putin. Good friend of Obama, Putin. My he question, likes Obama a lot. Go ahead. My question will be about foreign politics. Okay. If you would be elected as a president, what will be your foreign politics, especially in the relationships with my country? And do you want to continue the politics of sanctions that are damaging of both economy, or you have any other ideas? Okay. Obama gets along with nobody. The whole world hates us. You know, it's an amazing thing. You look at Mexico, they hate us, they hate our leadership, and yet they're making a fortune. China hates us. China is building ports in the, in the South China Sea. We could never do a thing like that because we'd have to get environmental impact statements, okay? So we're... <laughs> I jokingly said to a friend, do you think they got an environmental impact statement when they did? So China hates us. And yet they're making, everybody hates us. And yet they make money with us. With me, we're gonna make money on them and they're gonna like us. I know Putin, and I'll tell you what, we get along with Putin. Putin has no respect for President Obama. Big problem, big problem. And Russia has been driven. You know, I've always heard, for years I've heard, one of the worst things that can happen to our country is if Russia ever gets driven to China. We have driven them together with the big oil deals that are being made. We've driven them together. That's a horrible thing for this country. We have made them friends because of incompetent leadership. I believe I would get along very nicely with Putin, okay? And I mean, where we have the strength. I don't think he'd need the sanctions. I think that we would get along very, very well. I really believe that. I think that we would get along with a lot of countries that we don't get along with today and we'll be a lot richer for it than we are today. All right, so that was Donald Trump back in 2015 answering the question of Maria Butina, an admitted Russian spy who had infiltrated the National Rifle Association for the purposes of influencing American politics. And, you know, that alone should be just like, you know, a showstopper. I mean, that, that's amazing. Now, is it significant? I don't know. It's interesting as hell. Like everything with Trump, a lot of this is a Rorschach test. You could you could interpret that as Trump having no idea who Putina is. He's just answering the question, and he's answering it in a you know off the cuff, honest way. And I'm open. I am totally open to that interpretation. Totally open to that. In fact, that's probably what happened. And if in isolation, if there wasn't all this other smoke surrounding this, I would say, okay, that's got to be it. But when you consider all the other smoke in this story, it's, it's very easy to start interpreting things differently. Like, for instance, the very first thing, and it's not great audio, so you might not have heard it. He points at her. You can't see that, obviously, from the audio. He points at her and says, okay, let's go. Okay, let's go. Now, that doesn't prove anything. But I've been to a lot of these events, and I've even been in line to ask questions at these events. That is a statement that is consistent with somebody who knows, okay, we're, let's do our dance. Right now, we're, we're about, let, you, ready to, you ready to dance? That's, that's what he's saying. Let's go. Let's do it. That, that, that's consistent with that. Now, what's inconsistent with that is, his first part of the response is rambling, as you know, classic Trump. It's rambling. He's not really answering the question. If Trump was a normal candidate, by the way, that's what the response would have been, rambling and not answering the question, because there is no way in, in fairly early 2015, right at the beginning of this campaign, Trump 
is ready to answer a question about whether he's in favor or not of the Russian sanctions. <laughs> I mean, this is, in a rational world, this is nowhere near the top of issues that he has been fully briefed on, right? There is no way. So a normal candidate would say, you know, we'll look into that. I'm not sure yet. We'll have a policy paper on it. I get that Trump's not normal. I get that there's a very good chance Trump could just decide literally <laughs> as he's standing there, you know what? I'm against the sanctions, even though he starts off by bashing Obama for being too nice on Russia. But then in the same answer, he says, I don't think we need the sanctions. So you can interpret this in whatever way you want. He also says, I know Putin. Well, at other points, he says, I don't know Putin. I have nothing to do with Putin. He, by the way, this is not the only time he claimed to know Putin. But with Trump, see, this is where it's so hard to interpret Donald Trump because he's such a liar and doesn't care about the truth. He might have just decided at that time that it was a good thing for him to be seen as knowing Donald, uh, knowing Vladimir Putin, because it makes him seem credible, like he's of that ilk. That, that yeah, hey, I'm a I'm a world figure. I, I know Putin, so I could see that being the reason why he says that. So it, it's all very difficult to interpret, and again, easily could go either direction. But there's nothing in that statement to me that makes it impossible that this was a setup. I'm not saying a setup like directly from Putin to Putina to Trump and that, that Trump was fully aware of exactly what he was supposed to do. Not, I'm, not, 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 I'm, not, I'm not making the Manchurian candidate argument, okay? I'm saying that this might have been a way for Trump to send a message publicly to Putin, which he knows is going to get this, that, hey, look, I'm willing to deal. I'm ready to go. Let's do this. And I'm willing to get rid of the sanctions. Now, if you think about it, the safest way to engage in a, and I'm not going to call it a conspiracy, but maybe call it conspiracy light. The safest way to engage in a conspiracy light is to do it out in the open. Right? Because any back-channel communication, Trump doesn't do email, but any back-channel communication looks inherently shady if it ever gets found out. But if you do it publicly, it's actually more efficient and safer. And this is not the only time Trump has engaged in behavior consistent with this. you got to remember, in the general election, Donald Trump publicly asked Russia to hack into Hillary's emails. That's almost, not directly, but it's it's a good uh, paraphrase of what Trump said. Now, he said it in a way that his fans have interpreted, oh, he's just joking. Okay, it's an inappropriate thing to joke about, but here's the part that very few people know. According to one of Mueller's indictments, guess what happened that night? That night! Russian elements attempted to hack into Hillary Clinton's emails. Now, apparently they were unsuccessful, but there was an attempt that night. Now, guys, girls, ladies, gentlemen, I I abhor conspiracies, but I do believe in people acting in their own self-interest. And I think it is entirely possible that Trump was communicating with the Kremlin publicly because that was actually the safest way to do it. Could this all be coincidental? Yep, could be. Hell of a lot of uh, coincidences. Hell of a lot of coincidences. And they keep piling up. But it is possible. But I find it fascinating and amazing that when you consider how much media coverage the Russia story has generated, that this Maria Butina thing has not gotten until this week hardly any play and the clip we played for you has gotten hardly any play and i mentioned that there's a john ziegler element to it so the the guy that butina apparently used to infiltrate the nra is a guy by the name of paul erickson now i i stupidly didn't even research 
who the boyfriend was. I don't know why I didn't, but I was doing a, a TV spot this week with David Schuster. You may remember David Schuster from MSNBC. He's now doing some international network that I don't, I've never heard of before. They claim to have millions of viewers across the globe. I have no idea. But they asked me to do an interview about an, a column that I wrote about Maria Butina. And I was actually doing this interview from, from my bedroom <laughs> because I was doing it on Skype. They asked me if I wanted to come to a studio in Los Angeles. But if I did that, I was going to miss my daughter's gymnastics. <laughs> I'm such a butz. And, and so I said, and plus it would have been a very long drive and rush hour and it would have been a pain in the ass. So I said, can we just do this on Skype? Fine. Well, at nighttime, because this was a nighttime interview, there's n- almost no place in my house where I can get enough light for a Skype shot to look halfway decent. So if they, if we had turned my computer around, it would have been freaking hilarious. The contraption that we had set up, we had lanterns and uh, lamps brought in from other parts of the house, all just so this Skype shot would look halfway decent. Uh, when, when behind the scenes, it was uh, like a, you know, I was might as well have been in a white trash tra- trailer park. But um, but the point of this is, so Schuster, and it's also bizarre that Schuster even asked me on, because almost 10 years ago to the day, Schuster and I had two very famous battles on MSNBC in the same day about Sarah Palin. Uh, so we were, we were former enemies, and for some reason he's become a fan of mine. And in the course of this interview, they start to play clips uh, before the interview, they start to play clips of Maria Butina and her boyfriend. And I'm like, holy shit, that's Paul Erickson. Now, I know Paul Eric. I haven't talked to Paul Erickson in years because I'm not part of the right-wing conspiracy anymore. But back when I was part of the right-wing conspiracy, Paul Erickson was probably one of the people I liked most. That's not saying much because most of the people in the right-wing conspiracy were assholes. But... Uh, of if you made a list of the people within the right wing conspiracy that I was friends with who I really liked, Paul Erickson would have been in the top five, right there with uh, Andrew Breitbart. In fact, Andrew Breitbart, Paul Erickson, and I hung out at at least two different CPACs, the Conservative Political Action Conference in Washington D.C., uh, where we spent an awful lot of time together, drank more than a few beers together, and uh, Paul is is a smart, hilarious guy. Uh, and I thought he was one of the few people in the movement that was at least somewhat sincere. Now, to be clear, he was definitely a social climber. He was definitely always, you know, you know, he and I and uh, and at that time, Andrew, were basically C or D list within the uh, right wing conspiracy. And he was definitely someone who wanted to get into the into the A or B list of the right wing conspiracy. And, um, you know, my recollection is from those times at CPAC that he was definitely interested in female companionship, like a lot of guys at CPAC are. But uh, so, so, you know, I liked Paul. He was not perfect. Um, you know, and, and, but, but when I learned while doing this interview that he was the boyfriend who is now, uh, I guess he's an unindicted co-conspirator currently, although the evidence against him is pretty strong, in helping Maria Butina, a Russian spy, infiltrate the NRA, I was, to say the least, rather shocked. Because <laughs> I just cannot wrap my brain around the idea that, that Paul would knowingly take part in something like this, unless, of course, his little head was thinking for the big head, which is quite probably what happened here. Uh, you know, Paul is, you know, he's mostly bald with frizzy hair. He's an older guy. Maria Butina is a younger woman. She's not gorgeous, but, you know, some guys might go for that Russian accent thing. She's attractive enough. And apparently she had a way about her. I could certainly see where Paul would uh, would get his brain uh, filled with uh, a, a lot of uh, false notions about what was really happening and, and may have uh, effectively let his dick do the, the thinking for him. Uh, that that's I'm hoping I'm hoping that that's what really happened here, because if it's not, then wow, it, I, I may have lost the ability to be shocked by anything. But more substantively about the the nature of this right wing conspiracy, there is no question that the NRA uh, had a lot of very shady connections in all this. David Keene, who was uh, the guy who ran CPAC at the time when 
Paul Erickson and Andrew Breitbart and I were running around CPAC and speaking there and what have you. David Keene ends up leaving after I confront David Keene about Sarah Palin and some other things involving corruption that went viral and got a lot of news coverage. That was in, uh, in 2009 or 2010. I think it was late 2009 when that happened. Um, so I, uh, you know, so I have no love for Keene. Keene ends up becoming the head of the NRA. And he's the head of the NRA during most of this time where Butina is infiltrating the NRA and even taking a number of NRA people, including Keene, on a trip to Russia to meet Russian officials. Well, why is this important? It's not just because I have this history with Keene and and uh, obviously I, I believe that Keene is a, not a good guy. I believe that Keene is capable of any level of corruption. Uh, and so therefore that's relevant with regard to what might have really happened here with Russia and the NRA. But here's what also is relevant. In 2009, I, because of my movie Media Malpractice, I was a co-sponsor of CPAC because I was advertising with them. And I was also a speaker, although I wasn't given nearly the speaking spot I deserved. I mean, I was a conservative on the Today Show uh, that very week with my movie coming out. I mean, at that time, conservatives, I mean, unknown, non-celebrity conservatives had never done a live 730 prime spot interview with Matt Lauer as I had. And I had done it that week and a bunch of Fox spots as well and the O'Reilly factor and what have you and I had some crappy uh, speaking role at CPAC because I wasn't part of the in crowd well as part of the being a co-sponsor you're allowed to come to a planning meeting to you know to basically determine what's going to happen at CPAC this is like a couple months beforehand and so I come across the country to be part of this meeting and there's all these wannabes and hangers on and David Keene is basically running the show and there's the list of proposed speakers. And there's two people on the list that I'm like, wait a minute, this is just, you know. It's just flat out ridiculous. It's absurd. Uh, one was Joe Scarborough, ironically enough, because uh, I did not believe that Joe was anything close to a conservative anymore and that he had actually helped Obama's campaign. Uh, um, and I believe that Joe was definitely one of these people who put his finger up in the air and I got him to know know him fairly well. Been on his show, and he'd been on my show uh, several times. That uh, he was not sincere, was not legitimate. I think history has has proven me right on that because he flipped on Trump in two different directions, both in the primary and then uh, after the uh, the general election was over. So Joe Scarborough was one, and the other was Jerome Corsi. Now you might know the name Jerome Corsi because Corsi is the guy who claims that Mueller is about to indict him because of his interaction with WikiLeaks and Roger Stone and him being potentially the conduit between the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks, uh, which I don't know if it's true or not, because it's possible to me that Corsi, uh, that Corsi is just promoting his book that's coming out and that he actually wants all this negative publicity. Anyway, here's what happened. So I make this essentially a motion to have Joe Scarborough and Jerome Corsi removed from the uh, speaking uh, list because they're not conservatives. Corsi is a 9-11 conspiracy nut and that they're not good for the movement and they don't deserve to be honored with a speaking slot. And effectively, everybody in the room agrees with me. And there was basically unanimous consent. And in fact, Keene even said, you know, that's a good point. We'll, we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take care. I don't remember exact words, but it was my impression that he would take care of it. Well, sure enough, both Scarborough and Corsi, because of David Keene stepping in for them, were in exactly the spots that had been proposed. Now, does that prove anything? No, but that's an interesting level of connections, is it not? Maria Butina to David Keene to Jerome Corsi. Now, part of this is we're just dealing with a small group of people, and whenever you're grouping with, dealing with a fairly small group of people, you're going to have connections. But this is somebody I know for a fact, David Keene, not only had, not, is close to, but was willing to effectively help against but was right and against the conservative movement by keeping him in a speaking slot, either because of their friendship or because of money that Corsi was paying to CPAC. And by the way, 
squaring the circle, guess who else paid CPAC to get his prime speaking spot twice? Donald Trump under David Keene's reign. And that was key to Trump fooling people into thinking that he was some sort of conservative. And that's a fact. He paid him, I believe it was $100,000 over two years to speak twice. So I don't know for sure what happened with the NRA and Maria Butina. I, I just know the whole thing is bizarre. It's off the charts. It's, if it was about the Clintons, everyone would presume the absolute worst. But it sure feels like collusion. I mean, I don't know what else there would be. I mean, the National Rifle Association just coincidentally went way, way overboard in comparison to what they had previously done in past years in endorsing and promoting Donald Trump and attacking Hillary Clinton. And it's important to point out, it's not like Donald Trump was like Mr. Second Amendment. His quote-unquote record on guns was very weak as a lifelong Manhattanite who was basically a liberal. So it's not like, um, you know, this was uh, Charlton Heston reincarnated that they were endorsing as president. This was Donald Trump, yet they went, they spent way more money way earlier than they ever had for any other candidate. It's definitely one of those things that make you go, hmm. Now, there's also been a lot of uh, news coverage lately about Michael Cohen. And before I get into what we've learned and what we've not learned about Cohen and, and Michael Isikoff and I get into this in pretty good detail in hour number two. I want to read a tweet from Donald Trump about Michael Cohen from less than eight months ago. Less than eight months ago. Think about this, folks. And I want you to think about this tweet and, and think that if we were not so desensitized to the insanity that is Donald Trump, how big a deal this would be, how off the charts the, um, the, the level of uh, outrage would be if the, uh, if the President of the United States, President of the United States, had made this declaration publicly and turned out to be totally 100% flat out wrong about his own personal lawyer. So here's this tweet from less than eight months ago. From the President of the United States. Keep in mind where we are now currently. The New York Times and a third-rate reporter named Maggie Haberman, by the way, someone who Trump has done numerous interviews with, known as a crooked H flunky, who I don't speak to and have nothing to do with, are going out of their way to destroy Michael Cohen and his relationship with me in the hope that he will quote-unquote flip. They use non-existent sources and a drunk-slash-drugged-up loser who hates Michael, a fine person with a wonderful family. Michael is a businessman for his own account, of his, for his own account, slash lawyer. I have no idea what the hell that means, but this is Trump, <laughs> Trump's writing. For his own account, slash lawyer, who I have always liked and respected. Most people will flip if the government lets them out of trouble even if it means lying or making up stories. Sorry, I don't see Michael doing that despite the horrible witch hunt and the dishonest media. Now, that's the President of the United States less than eight months ago ripping a reporter who he's given lots of access to, who has been right about almost everything regarding her reporting on Trump, and defending Michael Cohen and predicting that he'll never flip on him. How'd that all turn out? And this is a guy who got elected president of the United States largely by boasting about his great judgment when it comes to hiring people. (laughs) And maybe of all the things about Trump and the the Colt 45 reaction to him that drive me crazy is he is allowed to have it both ways constantly. So which is it? Which is it? it? Is is he really, really, really bad at choosing people to hire? Right. Or is he flat out wrong here? Is he lying? Is, is, in fact, is, in fact, Cohen telling the truth now? Which is, I believe, what's happening. That's what I think is happening. And, you know, I was, he was lying before, but now he's come to Jesus. And apparently he has lots of corroboration to back up 
what he's saying. Now, that's, does that make his word uh, the word of God? No, clearly not. But it certainly appears as if what he's saying has a lot of corroboration. And I believe that the most amazing thing that we've learned from Cohen is that in June of 2016, Donald Trump was still attempting to broker a deal with the Russian government to build Trump Moscow while he was about to become the Republican presidential nominee. That is unbelievable that Trump thought that that was even remotely appropriate. It indicates to me he thought he was going to lose, which is amazing that he would take the nomination, which is essentially leveraging for a business deal, figuring that he's going to lose. But even more important than that, it effectively proves that his statement, which apparently gave to Mueller under oath in written form because he's too much of a coward to testify, like he promised that he would, that he knew nothing about the Trump Tower meeting, is flat out, as Charles Barkley would say... It's just flat out ridiculous. It's beyond ridiculous. It's absurd. It's a lie. It was a lie before we knew about the Trump Moscow project going on at the time. That's It's important to point out, this is June 2016, the same month when the Trump Tower meeting is taking place. There is no effing way, no fucking way, Donald Trump was not kept in the loop on every detail of a meeting involving influential Russians in his own building that, that takes place during this time period when his dream of building Trump Moscow is still on the table and... He has a situation where his son, his son-in-law, and his campaign chairman are in the meeting on a day when it appears as if Trump himself was in the building. Come on, people. Come on. Can we please use your brains for just a second? Trump is obviously lying there. Correct. And, and that's under oath. That's perjury. That is way worse perjury than Bill Clinton was impeached for. That's the reality of this. But that might not be the worst part of this whole Michael Cohen payoff situation. I mean, there's the Russian element, and then there's the payoffs, the Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. And frankly, of all the things that I have been vindicated about from our coverage of the 2016 election, I would say that number one is what I was telling you all the way back in the spring of 2016 about the National Enquirer. Nobody called the National Enquirer thing more clearly and earlier than I did. I told you that the National Enquirer was an arm of the Trump campaign. And that has turned out to be, in fact, that phrase was even used in court filing this week. That's 100% accurate. Only it's way worse than I ever imagined. I just thought it was they were clearly giving Trump pro coverage and attacking his enemies with bullshit stories because of his friendship with David Pecker. I did not realize that Trump had made an horrendously stupid idea, a stupid deal, to provide <laughs> David Pecker, the head of the National Enquirer, with leverage over him, the likes of which Vladimir Putin could never dream of having. Here, I'm gonna, here's all my dirt. I'm going to prove to you all my dirt. They're going to have a they're going to have a vault for my my dirt, and I'm going to trust our friendship that this is never going to come out. Even telling Michael Cohen on tape, well, we got to figure out something if if Pecker gets hit by a bus. Well, what if Pecker decides to sell the information to a foreign government, which becomes incredibly valuable once you become president? You fucking moron! This is not a normal situation where well you know a foreign government might not care that much about having uh you know blackmail information on a congressman or a governor or, or a senator they might care a little bit but a president that's totally different now all of a sudden pecker's sitting on a gold mine and he took the oath of office of presidency trump did knowing that he was leveraged for blackmail by a terrorist organization which is what the National Enquirer is. Just ask Tiger Woods because they use the same tactics with Tiger Woods that they did with Karen McDougal. I've written a column about this, well, you know, and it's been re reposted. You can easily uh, Google this. I urge you to do so. Uh, the media is still missing this part of the story. 
And to me, it's the number one element of all of this with regard to Cohen. That is the real scandal. The, the campaign finance violations are not that big of a deal. They're really not. I mean, unless there's more stuff that we're not sure about at this point. But even if everything comes to fruition that we suspect, I don't think that it's necessarily an, an impeachable offense. And I don't believe that Donald Trump is ever going to go to jail for it because even if he loses election and, and they decide to prosecute him, he'll easily be able to plead it down. And it's going to be very difficult to prove, especially when, you know, a huge portion of the population are big fans of Donald Trump. So I, I don't I, I think there's been much too much made of the campaign finance violations, even though I think it's important. It's outrageous what he did. The real scandal to me is the deal with the National Enquirer. That was threatening to our national security. That, to me, is a, is a big deal. One of the other things we talked with Michael Ishikoff about, and he agrees with me on, and I've written a column about this, you can find it at freespeechbroadcasting.com, is the, the Michael Flynn sentencing. It doesn't make sense to me if there was collusion. If there was a conspiracy for collusion, Michael Flynn would have to be a big part of this. And if he was a big part of this, the reason why he had to be a big part of this is, I mean, this is a guy who was paid by Russia. He, was, he had dinner in Russia with Vladimir Putin at a gala, sitting next to him. He was the national security advisor. He was with Trump almost every day of the campaign. This was the guy. I mean, if there was going to be Russian collusion, it would be through Michael Flynn, yet he's getting recommended for zero jail time? Now, the argument is, well, he's been so cooperative. Well, no, not really. And Ishikov actually points out that he, he hasn't been as cooperative as, as the uh, perception by the media, which might have confirmation bias, has been created. But more importantly than that, to me, the most recent filing at the end of this week, his lawyers are still trying to claim he's innocent and they're ripping the FBI. How is that super cooperative? So I'm with Michael Ishikov. I, I am starting to believe that while there's some really bad stuff here and definitely some impeachable offenses, especially when it comes to obstruction of justice, that we may never get anything that's close to a smoking gun proving, quote unquote, a conspiracy to collude. I make an interesting analogy that Michael Ishikoff seems to uh, agree with, or at least sees the validity in, in our number two, about this being kind of like an intended affair that never actually comes to fruition, but then they decide to cover up because it looks so bad that there was almost an affair. I don't know that to be the case, but that I'm open to that possibility. It doesn't explain all the lying. It doesn't explain all of Trump acting guilty. It doesn't explain Mueller not providing exonerating leaks to, to throw the media off of this narrative that they're, they're so entrenched in now, but at least it is plausible to me. And um, I, I've mentioned this before, and I, I'm going to make this very clear. I am open to all possible conclusions at this point. But I, I am heading towards the notion that Trump is clearly guilty of impeachable offenses, probably not collusion, but that nothing is going to happen to him. And he will not be removed from office. And I've also mentioned that I have this bet with a, a person who's a friend of mine from many years ago who works for a very, very pro-Trump media organization. And we have probably exchanged at least a thousand text messages since the start of the, the Trump presidency. And their view has been for quite some time, Trump is going down. And our bet is that by the end of 2019, he will be removed from office or will resign. Because of scandal. And I say no. And in fact, this week, despite this barrage of seemingly very bad uh, news for Trump, I doubled down the, on the bet. I said, let's double it. And they said, okay, fine, sucker. And I'm, I'm more positive than I have been. I'm not 100% positive, but I'm more, more confident than I have been that Trump is not going to get removed from office. Do I think he'll be impeached? I, I think so. I still hope so. I'm not wavering on that unless something really bizarre happens and somehow he's exonerated here, which I don't see occurring. But, um, but I do not believe he'll be removed, and he's damn well not going to resign. So, uh, so we have that to look forward to in 2019. <laughs> By the way, in, let's be clear. If Trump is not impeached in 2019, what the hell are we going to talk about in the media? Seriously, there's, there are not going to be any major deals especially after that, uh, that Pelosi-Schumer-Trump summit 
uh, unless Trump decides to turn into Schwarzenegger, which is certainly possible. But there, there's going to be very little action that's going to occur. Uh, the, the presidential race won't officially really start until the end of 2019. So at least for the next six months or so, if Trump is not impeached, it, it's almost demanded. We almost demand to have Trump impeached purely for programming purposes. And don't, don't you think that that's not part of this? The media knows they need programming. We need a new chapter in this reality show. This is supposed to be the season of impeachment. And we'll see what ends up happening. Uh, and we'll be here to cover it because, as I said uh, at the beginning of this hour, uh, we will continue this uh, podcast uh, into 2019. I don't know exactly how long into 2019. It's possible that the podcast may change a little bit, might expand a little bit. Those are very preliminary possibilities. But we will, uh, I, I can assure you, continue this podcast, which had a rough year in 2018 because of some circumstances way beyond our control, most of which were logistical, which seemed to be uh, straightened out. Uh, but we made it We made it through 2018, and we're, <clears throat> we're going to make it into 2019, at least for the first half of the year. So thank you for continuing to support the podcast. Uh, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Barring some sort of major news development, this will be the last episode of this year, but we will join you again in early 2019. And as uh, always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, uh, please share this via social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. If you share it and tag me, I'll be happy to share it as well. That's much appreciated. And number two, do yourself a favor, and if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mmm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.